This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. Welcome to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly discussing today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. My name is Rob Pacienza, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, John Rabe. John, great to see you, man. Great to see you, Rob. I'm always excited every week when we do this podcast uh, because we just get to talk to great people, and it's it's just exciting for me to to get to ask questions to people I admire so much. But this week, and I've said this before, but this this might be the most excited that I've been, and, and I mean it because our guest today is somebody that we at the ministry have been trying to get for an interview for a long time, and it just hasn't worked out, uh, but we finally got things set up uh, recently, and she was able to join us, and I just admire her from top to bottom, one of the smartest thinkers in Christianity, and somebody who's cutting against the tide. And you can you can tell us more about who she is and who we're talking to. Yeah, a- absolutely. We're uh, talking today to Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she is a best-selling author and speaker, and she has an incredible testimony. Actually, she just uh, she's documented her testimony, but she's also uh, working on a, a new work that I think has been recently released, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Um, but more importantly than her recent work, it's the story of God's redemption in her life. Yes. Uh, this is a former uh, professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. Uh, during that time, she was an advocate for feminist philosophy and queer theory, and she too herself was a practicing homosexual mm-hmm. uh, married to another woman. And full lifestyle. Full lifestyle. And just to hear about God's story of redeeming grace in her life, the hound of heaven, uh, just pursuing her. I mean, her whole uh, agenda at the time was to disprove Christianity, to show how it was oppressive against minorities, including the LGBTQ community. Uh, And instead of trying to debunk and to uh, kind of throw fire, uh, you know, uh, onto the the conversation or the divisive conversation Mm -hmm. about how Christianity is divisive in America, she comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ herself, has a complete transformation, and uh, now today is an advocate for God's design concerning gender and sexuality. And a strong advocate. I mean, she pulls no punches, as you'll hear in this interview, uh, but that's the amazing thing, that she was fully immersed in the, the homosexual lifestyle. A pastor and his wife simply showed her hospitality, started inviting her to dinner at their home. She became friends with them, and they shared with her over time the gospel uh, she received Christ, and and there's just been a, a complete change in her. She is now uh, a married, homeschooling mother. Uh, she Her husband is a pastor. They have a number of children together, and uh, just a complete change. But seeing what's going on in the culture right now and having the background that she does uniquely positions her to talk about these things. And as you'll hear in the interview, she she gets right into it. I mean, she is. She does not tiptoe through the uh, the tulip field, so to speak. She goes right at it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it's one thing for someone to have the testimony that she has to come to Christ, uh, to leave the lifestyle she was in, uh, but then she would have had every right to just kind of stay quiet yeah. uh, and just go on with her life in a, in a peaceful and private manner. But she has done the opposite of that. She has become a public figure uh, talking about God, uh, the culture's assault 
on God's design concerning gender and sexuality, uh, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, and she has become a champion. And I'm really excited, as we'll talk about uh, on the interview today, that we will be having her live in yes. person at the 2024 Kingdom Come Conference, uh, which will be March 14th through 16th at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. So excited to interview her today and excited to bring her down to Fort Lauderdale in March. So uh, without further ado, here is our City of God interview with Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria, so good to have you on the City of God podcast today. It is a joy and pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, we have you coming down to Fort Lauderdale for the Kingdom Come Conference, which is going to be March 14th through the 16th of 2024. And the theme of that conference is standing for truth in an upside down world. In what ways can we really see an upside down world in the 21st century? Right, right, right. One of the clearest ways is if you turn to your Bibles to Romans 1 and um, you see in Romans 1, the, there are three exchanges that God talks about, and all three of those exchanges have now been codified into law. So truth has become lies. Um, heterosexuality has been uh, given over its normative position to homosexuality, and the worship of God has been um, functionally replaced by the worship of idols. And what, you know, now sometimes people will say like, well, come on, Rosaria, it's always been that way. No, no. Uh, in a post-Bergefell world, all of those exchanges have been codified into, into the law of the land. And that's the important thing to think about. So in the Obergefell decision, which was the 2015 uh, decision that legalized gay rights uh, in all 50 states, it also included something called a dignitary harm clause. That means that you're, it redefined uh, the legal definition of harm. It means that you are harming someone who, who identifies him or herself by the letters LGBTQ and the symbol plus. Um, uh, you are harming that person, not by denying them a material good, like a job or a pizza, but by failing to affirm their identity. So if Christians want to know why people are losing their jobs for not using preferred pronouns, that's why. So we live in an upside down world because the three exchanges in Romans 1 have become codified into the law of the land. And most Christians I talk to don't seem to know that. A brilliant answer. It really is. I want to get into the your personal story, and and you've written a new book that we're very excited about. But just to follow up on that, this idea of dignitary harm. I, you know, I know there was a book recently, and when I say recently, the last five years, written called "The Coddling of the American Mind," and uh, we we see this fragility that plays such a part now in our public debates, where uh, disagreement is hate, and uh, you uh, if you if you disagree with me. You have to be silenced because you're threatening me. You have a background as a feminist college professor, um, so you have the, the campus experience as well. What do you see that has happened over the past couple of decades that has led us to this point where disagreement is now harm? Yeah, 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 yeah. So first of all, I mean, you all know this, but I'm the problem, right? This is the world I helped create. Mm. I was a gay rights activist. I was a lesbian I was uh, tenured in queer theory and women's studies and English literature. 
I was hired and mentored by Syracuse University to make homosexuality look wholesome. And unfortunately, I pulled it off. Mm. So I'm going to talk about all these things. We're going to slay all these sacred cows, but uh, the blood's still on my hands. Mm. I I did this. So let's not forget, <laughs> let's not forget that. Um, but one of the things that you definitely see as we're shifting, and I've been really thinking about this because I've been testifying for the legislature and speaking to Durham school board, school board meetings on transgenderism and parental rights, which, you know, that's a, that's a freak show in so many ways. And, and it's really different because 35 years ago, when I was on their side, we would always put forward the lawyers, the PhDs and the doctors, and we kept the lunatics at home. Now, you know, everybody wants their lunatic at the <laughs> microphone. And this is a really good question. Like what, why did we think that was a good idea? And I think Carl Truman's book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, explains it, that, that um, uh, expressive individualism has become a replacement for the image bearing of a holy God, which is the standard for personhood. And so you see this confusion in the world and in the church. So how does truth get exchanged? I remember maybe, I don't know, maybe it was... 10, maybe no, not, not 10 years ago, it was post Obergefell, maybe two, you know, I don't know, 2016 speaking at a, on a, on a Christian college campus. You can put that in scare quotes if you'd like, <laughs> um, uh, you know, and I was just, I was sharing my testimony. And part of my testimony is that when I was a gay rights activist, I had a drag queen friend with whom I would talk about Jesus. And I know that sounds kind of nuts, but if you ever wanted to know what gay rights activists talk about in the kitchen, you, you know, just come to my former kitchen. Every, mm. Eternity is written into the hearts of men. Mm. So um, I had shared in my testimony that um, my friend, whose uh, actual name was Matthew, but went by the name Jill, put a large hand over my hand as we were talking about faith and life. And and afterwards, a student jumped up and raised her hand, Dr. Butterfield, you hate transgendered people. I know it because you said your transgendered friend's hands were large. And I said, well, you know, I'm 5'2". My, you know, I barely cover an octave on a piano. Comparatively speaking, a biological male who stands 6'4" hands are large. Oh, you did it again. Mm. You, you did it again. And I, and I said, well, but but it's true. It's just objectively true. And the student jumped up and said, but your truth hurts my reality. Mm. And I thought that was a very interesting moment. She wasn't saying that it wasn't true. She was saying she wasn't, she wasn't rejecting the truth because it was false. She was rejecting the truth because it hurts. Now, if this nonsense had just stayed in the world, we might be okay but it slipped into the evangelical church through books and podcasts, parachurch ministries. Um, I can, I can quote, I've got the receipts if you'd like mm. somehow this idea that it's, it, it, it's God's truth is somehow not enough. The personal experience and especially the emotional pain of, um, of imagined victims are the people who really need to to share the 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 you know share the stage here? And so I think whenever truth is um, rejected, not because it's untrue, but because it hurts, we're in trouble. And now that parachurch ministries and broad evangelicals are on this bandwagon, uh, you know what, what I think we need to do is go right to the hottest part in the battle, 
we need to have this fight right here. But you know, it's hard to get evangelicals in a fighting mood, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rosaria, you briefly mentioned, uh, you know, what you spent so much of your time in your early career doing uh, as an activist, as a professor, uh, advancing queer theory. And and part of your agenda uh, was to show how Christianity had been used uh, to really suppress and oppress uh, the homosexual and transgender movement. Movement, um, right. but God had other plans for you in your life. Share with our audience briefly um, how the gospel of Jesus Christ transformed you and your testimony of incredible transformation through the grace of God. Yeah, well, I can't do that briefly, so I'm going to have <laughs> to just do that badly. Um, so I've written one whole book on it, and then there's a pretty big chunk of a section in the new book specifically on the exact conversations that Ken Smith and I had. And Pastor Ken Smith was my neighbor who um, wrote to me personally when I had written an article in a local newspaper that was was hateful about Christianity. And um, he offered to meet with me. And I thought that was awesome because I was writing a book on the religious right, basically wondering why people like you hated the person I used to be. And I thought, aha, here's my unpaid research assistant. So I um, was happy to spend time with, uh, with Ken and his wife, Floyd. And in the process of having hundreds of meals at his house and um, and and reading through the Bible seven times and just genuinely, you know, a- I mean, genuinely asking and answering the questions that I had, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin and also convicted me of the truth of our our crucified and resurrected Lord. And that was a truth over which I had no interpretive power. So it was a truth that just took me out of the game, as it were. Um, I wasn't sure what would happen next when I committed my life to Jesus, truly. I didn't know if uh, how the Lord was going to deal with my persistent lesbian feelings and, and a whole host of other things. I used to tell people, look, folks, I'm tenured in sin. So what do you, you know, what's going to happen? But, um, uh, you know, as is the Lord's way, he made a perfect path for me. And I look back on those years. This is, these are decades ago. I, I, I and, you know, I have been biblically married to my husband, Kent Butterfield, who has also been my pastor for all of these years. I have been biblically married for almost as long as I've been a Christian. And that was how God, that was clearly one of the ways that God gave me rescue and refuge and healing and victory. And yet that story is almost anathema in the broad evangelical church that wants to elevate singleness above marriage, that introduces the heresy of gay Christianity, side A or side B. It's the same theology. It's the same doctrine. It's the same heresy. And I think about these things because if I had come into the church today And I had some wacko evangelical pastor say to me, we're so glad you're here. You know, we need a a gay bowling league in our church. And here's a revoice conference. And, you know, there's nothing that that would have offered me that the New York Times and a Starbucks doesn't already. So doctrine matters. Mm. And um, 
the fact that, again, these parachurch ministries have been led by the nose to somehow think that it's loving to coddle someone's sin is anti-Christian and it's vile. I don't have strong opinions, as you can tell. <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to try to stop being so vague with you, yeah, brothers. Please. No, I love your I love your bold convictions and your strong opinions because you have been such a blessing to so many that have been wrestling through these ideas in broader evangelicalism. As you know, I'm a PCA pastor. Uh, this issue has been front and center for uh, the last five or so years with the Revoice Conference that you just mentioned, and so much of the debate has been around. Yes, we can all agree that the uh, the gospel leads to justification, but when it comes to sanctification, uh, it's really for those that want to embrace that you can still have same-sex attraction and it's okay, and uh, same-sex attraction and, and homosexual feelings are permissible for the Christian life. Uh, really, it came down to, does the gospel have the power to sanctify uh, the Christian? Is it is it is sanctification the, the, the mortification of sin, or is it the just sin management and your testimony has been living proof that, no, the gospel has not only the power to justify us before a holy God, but also put to death the deeds of the flesh. And so Absolutely. we are so grateful and for could you. Could I just say my Amen. testimony and thousands of others who don't want to deal with the with the hand-wringing wrath of the panty wastes in the PCA who can't tolerate that a resurrected Christ actually gives you power. <sighs> So I, you know, it's it's a mess. No. I don't have to tell you that. No. And these stories of deliverance are frankly a threat to uh, to this this LGBTQ plus movement. And uh, I know you've experienced that, Rosaria. And by the way, for those who want to know more, your your early book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, you lay all of this out in the process that you went through. It's 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 extraordinary and and encouraging. You're a wife. You're a mother. You're a church member. I I get the sense that you are not an by any means by nature a polemicist but um, you have been pulled into this and and really uniquely equipped I think by God to deal with some of these issues and and you have written a new book five lies of our anti-christian age I'm sure you wish you had other things that you were writing about instead but it really is this is something that's demanded right now isn't it yes absolutely I, in fact I tried to get almost anybody else to write this book I thought <laughs> Carl Truman would be the one who would yeah. do it but you know I just couldn't convince anyone else to write it. So, um, so uh, that's that's where we are exactly. And so, as we look through that book, some of the major lies that you deal with, or some of them we have already touched upon uh, on this program, uh, and some of them we haven't. I'd like to look at uh, you know a, a little bit the issue of feminism because we've dealt with some of the the LGBTQ stuff already. But um, as a as a former lesbian and a former feminist, um, mm -hmm. feminism is sort of the the gateway drug maybe that, that takes us to a lot of these other things. And yet to talk to even your average evangelical now, they would sort of identify, they may not use the term feminism, uh, but they would sort of fall on the side of feminism. Tell us a little bit about how feminism is a dangerous lie to the church. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, first of all, feminism relies on a false distinction between sex and gender. So feminism um, 
uh, from the, you know, just right out of the box, doesn't uh, look at the creation ordinance and say, yeah, that is good. That is good. Um, now, in its early in its early years, feminism advocated for citizenship and education, mm -hmm. which we wouldn't disagree with. Sure. But we also wouldn't say that we needed feminism to get that. But, uh, you know, so so it, so in some ways, feminism is credited with something that isn't necessarily the domain of the feminist. But the sex gender distinction is a really big problem. It suggests that um, that your biological sex is one thing, but um, uh, it has no patterned purpose, therefore no cultural application or what a feminist would call gender. And one of the reasons that, uh, one of the ways that you can see that particular sex gender distinction being played out today is in the transgender movement, which simply takes that sex gender distinction and moves it to mo its most obvious conclusion suggesting that biological sex is different than gender and that personhood is somehow attached in how you want to manifest your gender. And so where the early feminist would say, well, uh, you know, I have no problem being a, a woman. I just need to be at war with babies and men because that's a problem. Uh, you know, we don't, uh, my biological ability to, to, to be a creator, oh, I don't want that. And I certainly don't want men in charge. That would be terrible. Um, well, you know, now we see it really played out in transgenderism, where there's a complete breakage between, uh, you know, sex and gender, with gender becoming the do whatever you want approach to life. And, you know, if you don't like biblical patriarchy, I don't like the term complementarian. It's just it's just it's too clunky for me. So I like biblical patriarchy. Mm. If you don't like the idea that God says that um, wives are to be submitted to their husbands, that husbands are to be the heads and the protectors and women are to be the nurturers, husbands are to be the providers and the, and the women are to be the caregivers in the home. And if you don't like the idea of male headship in your church um, in all relevant ways, how do you feel about transgender patriarchy? Because that's what we see today. In fact, I would argue that feminism in the world is dead. Transgenderism mm. killed it. Uh, Title IX now supports, advances, advocates for um, quote unquote trans women, that's biological men, having full access to women's sports and women's locker rooms. So if you reject biblical patriarchy, you just might get transgender patriarchy, mm. which is where we are right now. The only place I can see that feminism is alive and well is in the broad evangelical church. <laughs> and what, what that tells me is that the broad evangelical church is not leading the world. Mm. It's, it's kind of jogging about five miles behind Again. In, the, in the 12K or whatever. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Rosario, I'm not only a pastor, but I'm a father of two children. And so this, this, this topic of gender confusion and the culture's assault on God's design for sexuality and gender uh, hits close to home. As I have a 10 and 12-year-old at home, I'm thinking about the world they're growing up in. How is the culture attacking and assaulting and directing this message directly to the next generation? And why should we be concerned about it? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm speaking as somebody who speaks to school boards about this. So, you know, I, 
I can I can tell you stories. Um, do you remember about 30 years ago, the gay rights movement talked a lot about leaving consenting adults alone? Mm, absolutely. You haven't heard that in a long time, have you? And there's a reason. In order to make a, a to build momentum as a movement and to look at um, people who live in perversion and sexual sin as sexual minorities deserving of civil rights, in order to actually make that case to a watching world, you had to have allies. Allies would be heterosexual folks who would say, well, I guess love is love. I don't know. I don't. Who am I to judge? The allies of 30 years ago are the groomers of today. Mm. You haven't heard leave consenting adults alone because we're not talking about adults. We're talking about the trans child, which Christopher Rufo brilliantly talks about as the totem of American culture. The totem, you know, like the like the organic head of the boar you put on a stick and march underneath it. Yeah. Um, so allies have become groomers and children are targets. And you see that with Disney. You see that with um, the Blues Clues Pride Parade with Nina West. And you see this with this complete cultural invention of the transgender child. There is no transgender child. Yes, a child can have gender anxiety in the same way that a child could have anorexia. That's the medical analog. But you would never turn to your daughter with anorexia and say, yeah, I, I, I need to affirm your fatness. And what you really need is a sticker and a parade and you're going to feel better. It's absurd. Even the APA, which is a pretty liberal, you know, uh, organization in lots of ways, very politically motivated. Even it says that 73% of the time, a child, a child's gender anxiety, if that child actually has that, will be resolved by natal normal puberty if social transitioning, uh, cross-sex hormones, and surgery are not introduced. So, um, you know, you're, you're just, it's, it is, I, it's, it's satanic is what it is. It's a satanic attack against the family. And here's where Christians need to enter this conversation. Because again, when you spend any time in the political realm, somebody's going to hold up pictures of the woman who, who, you know, the 13 year old who got the double mastectomy and the 14 year old boy with the castration. These are really horrible things to look at. And from a Christian perspective, we don't throw people away. We don't hold up people as an example of what not to be. My, the people in my life who most understand the resurrection of Jesus at this point are Christians who are detransitioners. Mm -hmm. And they are longing. They are longing for the time when they have a resurrected body, knowing that they could not mock God as much as they tried in their youth. What do you say to the dad who has castrated his 14-year-old son in the name of Joe Biden's interpretation of the 14th Amendment? Only a Christian has anything to say to him. So these are very serious times, and children are the target. And for that reason, um, I, I am very upset with these parachurch ministries who can't find the gumption to say, this is evil, this is wrong, don't do it. 
it, uh, transgenderism is a sin. It's an attack against the creation ordinance. It's the sin of envy. It's the violation of the 10th commandment. And instead, you know, all these guys just want to be a soft presence here in Sodom. Mm. Well, over my dead body in some ways. Yeah, good. Because good. we got to have the fight in the street now, folks. Mm. Hey, man, I, I love your perspective. And I'm so glad you made that point. It, it, this debate for the Church of Jesus Christ can't merely be political. Uh, we've got to show our people this is, this is a gospel issue. Uh, the, the glory of God is being assaulted. The gospel is being assaulted when we when we attack God's design for gender and sexuality. And I think that's such an important and ultimately, as I tell our congregation all the time, um, homosexuals and heterosexuals are struggling with the same thing. It's about identity. Do we find our identity in the world or we do I, I identify our identity ultimately in Christ? And we need to show a generation out there that is struggling with gender dysphoria, that's struggling with these issues, that you find your hope and your resurrection and your identity ultimately in mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. And he is the one that completes you and fully satisfies you. Yep. Could I add one thing to that? Though? Absolutely. We want to make a distinction between gender dysphoria, which is a medical illness. Now, all my ACBC friends are like, don't say that. But the ACB, you know, but, but the APA says it. No, so we're going to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go with that. And transgenderism, which is a political ideology becoming a social contagion with your government schools leading the charge because of a 2021 uh, anti-bullying uh, federal mandate to be taught in the schools. And if it's anti-bullying and it's federal and it's a mandate, as a parent, you can't remove your child. So that's the one thing. The other thing is it's not quite the same. It, I wouldn't say actually that heterosexuals and homosexuals are struggling quite with the same thing. And, and, and the reason I would say this is, is just this, and I'm not trying to challenge you because no, you're the pastor. Good. I'm the English professor. Yeah. I have, I am not a preacher chick wannabe. I don't, you know, <laughs> but I think about ideas. And so here's, sure. here's what, what I would say. I would say that homosexuality is not just a sin of practice. It is a sin of practice, whether it's your desire or you're actually in bed with somebody. Yes. Your, your desire is a form of practice. Our, our confession says the will is in it, even if it's unchosen. So, so it is a, um, it, it is certainly a sin of practice, but the sin of homosexuality is also a sin against the pattern of the creation ordinance. And because the seeds of the garden are in the gospel, it is a different sin. Now, does the blood of Christ uh, cleanse away all sin? Absolutely. But the nature of the sin is it's, it's, it's different. And I think it would be helpful to register this. So to that end, I would say there's no such thing as a gay person. There's no such thing as a transgendered person in terms of the ontological category of biblical personhood. And that is because image bearing is wrapped up in, in fact, growing in the knowledge and the righteousness and the holiness of God. Whereas transgenderism and homosexuality are part of the world, the flesh and the devil. That's good. Excellent, excellent, and, and very helpful clarifications. The book, again, is Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. It's published by Crossway. Uh, it's out now. And uh, we uh, are about out of the time that we have with you, Rosario. But I do want to just ask you, in as we get ready to close, how is it that these ideas have made their way into the, ch the, the evangelical church? We've seen it, you know, you start to expect to see things like the Sparkle Creed, uh, you know, in some crazy liberal denomination, but how is this stuff making inroads into what are 
self-professed evangelical churches? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, self-professed self-professed evangelical churches um, are you know are not using the confessions and the creeds that we have. Mm. And so, you know, in a, in, a, in some ways, to give them the benefit of the doubt, um, the tsunami of of sexual sin, uh, you know, took them out like you know, like they were a little rowboat in a sea in a tempestuous storm, using their toothbrush as an <laughs> oar. So the doctrine was weak. But then I would add to that, that many of these evangelical churches are so bound up in pleasing these parachurch ministries that you've just got hirelings and more hirelings. And here's what I know. I'm part of a denomination where my pastor, who's my husband, and our elders took a vow to die for the doctrine of the Bible. And I would venture to say that your church would do the same thing. These parachurch, you know, CEOs. Uh, took no such vow. Mm. And it got hot out there. And while the gospel frees you from the fear of man, I don't think that they really cared to have a fight. Because here's the thing, when you really see that this is spiritual warfare, and when you actually see that you are living out Ephesians 6, 1 Peter 5, this is real. Satan knows your name, he knows your address. Um you have to be willing to suffer for the gospel. I mean, I tell everyone, my, you know, a good prayer in the morning is, Lord, please protect me. And if I lose my job today for your sake, uh, may it go to the glory of God. Mm. You have to be ready to not be a hireling. But I think these guys, they just really are. I mean, I think, and I personally don't think that any mega church is going to make it. Mm. Because if you have to please men, that's not going to go well right now. Nope. It's a hard go for us. We know it. Absolutely. I, I love that you put it in the perspective, uh, once again, that this is a spiritual battle. I know when I when I talk about uh, the assault on God's design for gender and sexuality, I say it's a, it's demonic, it's spiritual mm-hmm. warfare. Some people cringe. They go, wow, is it really that bad? And I think to put it in any other perspective actually totally diminishes what is happening in the 21st century. We've got to elevate the conversation to the perspective of showing our congregations and the church in North America in particular, this is much bigger and greater than we even realize. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amen. And and so, and the Lord is bigger and greater than we realize. Absolutely. And, and the sword of the spirit is bigger and greater than we realize. But how many churches have given up their Wednesday night prayer meeting for nonsense? You know, are we really appealing to the means of grace? I hope we are. We need to. And my hope is that you know, whatever small part I get to play in this conference coming up would be encouraging Christians to pick up that sword of the spirit and to take it out to the world. There's no place to hide anyway. You're you're not going to be safe by hiding, you know, under your desk anyway. So join the party. It's not so bad out there, really. (laughs) Yep. Well, we are so grateful for your ministry and for your voice. And once again, looking so forward to having you in Fort Lauderdale, March 14th through the 16th for the Kingdom Come Conference, which is hosted at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. And you are a leading expert in so many of the topics that we talked about today, particularly for the North American Church. I even learned so much just talking to you briefly today, but uh, God be with you, and thank you so much for your voice in this cultural moment. Thank you so much. Lord bless you, brothers. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the City of God podcast and our interview with Rosaria Butterfield. If you enjoyed uh, this interview, it's believe it was encouraging to you and inspiring, uh, we pray that you would pass this along to family and friends as we together understand what it means to tackle today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. And until next time, I pray that God richly blesses you. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture.